Now it's time for Mind Body Health with Dr. Marvin Trotter. Good morning. Thank you, Eddie. Uh, we have a great show this morning that uh, I'm very interested in with Dr. Yoshi Katsura. Uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon in Willits. Um, everybody could benefit from listening to the show. I'm also a, you know, aging orthopedic skeleton here. Um, but first of all, let me introduce you to Dr. Katsura. Uh, welcome via Zoom from Willits. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so the first question is always, how did you get to Mendocino County? Well, that's a little bit of a long story. Um, I guess it started when I was a first-year medical student. And, you know, I had this friend in college who I became close with, and he was from Willis. And we were in the same year in college, and we became friends. And, and then after graduation, I went off to medical school, and he says, you really ought to come and check out the hospital in Willits. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, but, you know, they're doing surgeries up there, and Dr. Bowen's up there, and you should meet him. And so I came during one of my summer breaks and spent a month or so with him, and I just had a great time. You know, it was a lot of fun working with him and I learned a lot and I I wanted more after that and so I came back and back and every break that I had off from school I came and spent it in the hospital in Willits it was kind of a strange situation I just kept showing up and every time Bowen just kind of put me to work and um, you know I just followed him around and I didn't spend just time with Bowen. I spent time in the emergency room and in other areas of the hospital and got to know different people who I still get to see around today, which is fun. And um, it was a really good experience. And I became attached to the community. And it was always my dream to kind of come back and practice with Dr. Bowen and fulfill that, fulfill that legacy, I guess. And, and here I am. So it was almost a decade ago now uh, after after a lot of training and I set up a practice in New York City and uh, left all that to come come back home here to, to California and uh, to Willits. And I'm originally from Berkeley. That's where I grew up. And so it's not too far away, but um, I'm here working with well, Dr. Bowen. and Yeah. It's it's truly amazing that you have this beautiful new seventy million dollar hospital, Howard Memorial, in this tiny town where you and Charpentier and Dawson and Bowen all practice, and you have this huge waiting list, and it's quite a um, you know unusual situation. But you all are doing something right to have such a su successful situation. Yeah, I definitely think there's a good culture for orthopedics in this community, and that's something that Dr. Bowen has built up over the years, and uh, he had something to do with almost all of our training, you know, Dawson and me particularly, I think, and even maybe Charpentier, uh -huh. uh, and so that culture is passed on to us. Yes, do everything right. I, Bill is not, uh, you know... He, he wants everything done right. So tell us, uh, I'd like you to start with defining your specialty as an orthopedic surgeon who does spine surgery. Okay, great. So I'm, a, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, which means I'm trained in all the areas of the musculoskeletal system. 
And then I did a specialty training. It's called a fellowship in spinal surgery. And that, after all that, takes about six years. And it, it turns you into an orthopedic spine surgeon. So I, I'm trained to do all areas of orthopedics, but my focus and passion is spine surgery. Okay. So I want to start with everybody's problem in the whole world. It's low back pain. And I know this is a, you know, a behemoth to discuss, but um, could you just give us a little bit of a background on low back pain and then what you do and what you think is the proper way to approach it? Okay, that's a great question and a topic I'm certainly very interested in. And I'll start off by just saying that 99% of cases of low back pain do not need spine surgery. So say, your say back this. goes out and it, it's a dramatic thing. And people, people have this reaction and I understand it because anytime you've had back pain, you, you realize it's a serious thing. It's dramatic and it puts you on, it puts you down. You can't move. You can't walk. You don't want to get out of bed when your back goes out. And so, of course, your first assumption is that you, something must be horribly wrong with you and that you're going to have to rush and have back surgery. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, it's amazing. It's one, of the, it's one area in medicine where the symptoms do not really correspond well with the pathology. And so you can have a horrible cancer that's brewing in you and have no symptoms, but it's a terrible problem that needs, that needs to be treated. Back pain is kind of the opposite thing. You have horrible you know, massive symptoms, but the problem is usually benign. Um, and the reason for that is it's it, the back's a really intricate structure. Uh, it's it's this thing that's evolved over many many eons to allow you to stand erect in a way that's fluid and graceful, and you can be perfectly balanced with very little activation of your muscles and very little expenditure of energy. And so it takes a lot of musculoskeletal coordination to do that and also a lot of baseline bony architecture and so you can imagine there's a lot of different ways for that machine to go down um, if your muscles get out of alignment that can easily put your back into spasm if you start to develop a little bit of arthritis that can cause back pain the list of things that can cause back pain is it's it's pages long and so luckily most of those things are are fairly benign uh, they, they do not require surgery and they really just require conservative therapy. But um, the reason you seek medical treatment is to rule out the things that are not benign. And so most of the time I, I sit in my office and I see patients who come in to see me for back pain and I get to tell them that they don't need surgery. And that's how I spend most of my day. Well, that's, that's a fascinating thing because Number one, um, I think there's there are a lot of surgeons out there that says you have a problem, I have a scalpel. And it's amazing to me because doing utilization management for the Medi-Cal population as to that's a common problem that we have to fight against is people do find surgeons that want to cure their back pain when they really should be seeing the physical therapist. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a problem, um, and that's why spine surgery gets a bad rap. Uh, a spinal fusion, that's, that's a prototypical spine surgery is a spinal fusion. And it's a procedure where two or more vertebrae are joined together surgically to grow into a single piece so they don't move relative to one another anymore. And that's that's the prototypical spine surgery. That's one of the most common surgeries that I do. I've done for them, and 
give them a second chance. But it's also extremely powerful if it's used in the wrong patient. It could ruin a life easily. Um, and so picking who that procedure is really going to benefit is what I do. And so spine surgeons who abuse that, who use spine, uh, spine fusions inappropriately, they're really not going to have patients that do well because it's just as powerful as it is to cure someone. It's just as powerful to hurt somebody. Um, and if you start treating all back pain with spine fusions, then it, it's really not going to go well. And I think that's where, like you say, back surgery gets a bad rap. I think it's really from the inappropriate patient selection rather than the surgery itself. Could you? That's, that's correct. Could you take a moment and discuss disc disease, sciatica, you know, or some anatomy so people will understand sure. it a little bit? Because, like you say, the, the anatomy of things is um, very complex, that, and I've never understood it. <laughs> so I'll boil it down into its simplest form. I, I like to think of things in the simplest form possible. So. Your spine, you have about 32 bones in your spine, and they're all vertebrae, and each one is different, but they all have similar characteristics. Each vertebrae has um, is basically shaped like an oval, and they're stacked on top of each other. And so two vertebrae are joined together by a gelatinous disc, and it's the shock absorber of the spine. So every time you jump up and down or you hit a bump in the car, those discs brace that impact between the bones and so what happens is as you age as you get older those discs lose their gelatinous property and that can be sped up in certain situations particularly if you're a smoker for example and you have advanced you can have accelerated degeneration of your your intervertebral discs so these discs they're they're shock absorbers they're jelly and as you get older they dry out and they flatten and collapse and the bones become closer and closer together and then once the bones start touching and rubbing they basically generate arthritis and that's when bone start bone spurs start to form um, and other things start to happen most of the time this is just a natural thing it happens to everybody that there's not uh, Disc degeneration, if you were to MRI 100 people over the age of 45 on the street, 80, 80, 85% of them would have some form of disc degeneration. It's normal, wow. and it's a pretty benign process. The problem is, in some people, the discs shift in such a way that they can press on the nerves. And so you can imagine the spinal canal, it's a very tight space, and really there's only millimeters available for your nerves and spinal cord. And so if you start to have bone spurs or discs bulging into the spinal canal, then it can cause compression and that can result in sciatica. Sciatica is basically a fancy medical term for pain, electrical pain that is shooting down your arm or in your, or in your leg. And so yeah. that's, that's really when the problem occurs. Well, 20 years ago, I had a terrible form, uh, episode of sciatica. I was laying on my living room floor trying to find all kinds of meds to stop the pain. thought I needed back surgery. I called Ken Hook, and he just laughed at me and told me to start walking and see a physical therapist and, you know, be a man about it. Uh, and only two times since then have I had sciatica. And it's just... Um, uh, amazing also could you could you talk about a little bit you talked about how many people have back pain 
I'm I'm shocked at how few people actually exercise and and do something to keep their musculoskeletal system. Well, I think I think what's really interesting is I've seen I've seen people in their 80s, 90s, physically fit, active, working on their farm, and they have the most horrific skeletons you can imagine. Oh, really? So scoliosis, right. bone spurs, disc disease, collapsed vertebrae, you name it, but they just kind of carry on. And I think activity has something to play with that. So the bones and the nerves and the joints require motion. They require motion to survive. Bones and joints have limited blood supply, and the discs have limited blood supply. And what that means is that they don't get nutrition the way the rest of your tissue does. So when you cut your skin, it bleeds, and it heals rapidly. Your bones and your discs and your joints don't do that. They obtain nutrition from movement. And so by circulation of fluids oh, around really? them, that's how they that's how they obtain their 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 wow. nutrition. That's how they get fed. And so if you stop moving, if your joints become stiff and are unable to move, then they get starved, basically. And when they get starved, they start to die and they start to degenerate. And so there's something to be said about keeping the body active and flexible and strong. And it can, it can really keep you, keep you in a good state of health for a long time. And I see people all the time who are in these funks. How did they get there? Well, they stopped moving. They stopped exercising. They allowed their joints to deteriorate. And when the joints deteriorate, you get stiffness, then the nerves don't glide as well, they get trapped, they become encased in scar, and then you can develop sciatica. And sometimes to get out of that funk, you need to have surgery, but most of the time you just need to have physical therapy to stretch to try to regain what you've lost. Okay, um, before we get too far into this, I also wanted to um, just, um just briefly, tell us the two most common types of back surgery that you do. The two most common types of back surgery, first is a decompression, a general decompression of the spine. That's, that's, the, that's probably the most common surgery that I do. So that's if you have a disc herniation where a piece of the jelly ex explodes out of the disc space and into the spinal canal and presses on a nerve. That That's... I'm willing to argue one of the most painful conditions known to man because the pain's right at the source it's right right it's you're touching your nervous system and it doesn't go away it's constant and so surgery for that is extremely effective uh, and you know people people that is not your bread and butter back pain that is a searing sciatica down your leg maybe associated with numbness and weakness and uh, extricating that disc out of the space and Letting the nerve have some room to breathe is, is extremely effective. So that requires to remove a small portion of the bone. You make an access to get into the spine and then pluck the disc out and all is well. That's, that's, that's called a lumbar decompression. And then the same can be done in the cervical spine, cervical decompression. The second most common surgery I do is a fusion surgery. So that's, that's as we discussed previously, where you try to get two bones of the spine to grow together, two or more bones to grow together. And you do that uh, with, with rods and screws. And so you fixate them with the rods and screws so they no longer move. It basically acts as a brace or, or as a cast would if you had a broken bone. 
and allows those bones to grow together. And we stimulate that process by using bone grafts and other other substances to accelerate that healing. And what that is primarily used for is for abnormal motion across the vertebrae. So if there's instability or if there's deformity. So if you have scoliosis and your back is curving in a, in a way that's abnormal or you have a slip disc or one vertebrae is actually moving pathologically on another more than it should and that, that can compress the nerves then you can perform a fusion to stop that motion or stop that deformity from progressing. That's also extremely effective for uh, helping pain. Um, and another reason is if your spine is so stenotic, if your canal has no space left in it, that to decompress it would destabilize the spine. In those cases, you may need to perform a fusion as well. That's one thing that I've, I, even as an internist, I've learned this uh, lumbar stenosis that gives people a lot of pain. Um, yeah. It's uh, surprisingly effective and doesn't seem to be as um, as a big-time surgery as other back surgeries um, with yeah. good results. That's, that's correct. I think the reason for that is once your back becomes gets to a certain point, it really stops, it stops moving on its own, and it, it tries to fuse. And so as you get older and your discs generate, your bones start rubbing against one another, your body's reaction to that is say, okay, well, this is no good. Uh, this motion here is abnormal. Let me try to stabilize it by growing bone spurs and try to fuse it. And so your, your body actually tries to do this independent of any surgery. Oftentimes, it doesn't succeed. That's the problem. And it gets close, but not close enough to stop the motion, stop the pain. And so fusion in that case doesn't really take anything away from you. I mean, so I have patients who ask me, am I going to be able to move after the surgery? And my response to that is, well, it's not going to be any different than you are right now because your discs are so collapsed, there's zero motion there anyway. If you have a spine fusion, there's really nothing to lose. And in those patients, it's very well tolerated because they don't notice that anything's changed because nothing has changed. You're just finishing the job that your body started. But they don't have the pain afterwards. I've been very impressed. They don't with... have the pain afterwards. Right. That's right. Right. So let's talk about scoliosis. That's kind of a favorite topic of yours. I'll tell you that as a uh, before I went to medical school, I was an orderly at Houston Methodist Hospital, uh, where uh, my mother uh, was well known. She got one of the first total hips in the U.S. in the fifties from Joe King, because she was oh, wow. she was born breech and walked around for four years with dislocated hips before they took her to the big town of Waco and put her in a body cast for a year. So, um, it's a long story. But the I watched a scoliosis operation. It was the first operation I watched, and I almost lost my mind seeing this young teenage and this 12-year-old getting scoliosis surgery. I thought, I thought, my God, these people are barbaric you know, people who would do this to this nice woman that I had brought down from her hospital room. So tell us about scoliosis and what sort of, um, what that so, is. So yes, scoliosis is definitely a subject that I'm really interested in and really passionate about. And it's a really complicated subject. There's a lot of different types of scoliosis, but the one you're describing is, is I think, adolescent scoliosis, so scoliosis that develops when you're a teenager. And it's pretty common. About a one in a hundred kids are going to have scoliosis wow, to, some, to some degree. Wow. Okay, but only about one in a thousand need treatment. 
And so knowing a little bit about scoliosis, I think it's, it's important. Um, and in the state of California, it's mandated that kids undergo scoliosis screening in school. And, and that's how most people come to the, the notice of a medical doctor is they're, they're sent there to be screened for scoliosis or that someone thought that they had scoliosis. And it's, it's important that that's done. I think that that's, that's, it's important that we screen for scoliosis and, and um, check for it. And why is that? Is because if it's not detected early, it can turn into a very severe problem. And there are conservative therapies that can be used to, to halt the progression of scoliosis. So scoliosis is a curvature of your spine. It means that in, in one plane, your spine is starting to bend and curve, and that's not normal. Your spine should be perfectly straight up and down. And so, like I said, it's very common to have some degree of scoliosis. Mm-hmm. About one in 100 kids have that. Um, and most doesn't turn into anything. It, it stops. It doesn't progress. It doesn't get any worse. Um, and you go and live a normal life. But in that one out of a thousand case, it doesn't stop. It just continues to get worse as you get older and your spine becomes more and more deformed. And so it's good to catch it early and then it's good to treat it early surgically if it's starting to progress. Why is that? Well, because as you get older, you may be asymptomatic for a long period of time, but then 50 years of age comes by or 60 years of age comes by and suddenly you have a very dramatic curvature in your spine and you have pain and there's not a lot that can be done in that case you know to mm. fix to fix scoliosis as an adult is much more complicated than fixing it as a child that's because your spine as we discussed becomes much more rigid and fixed in place and it doesn't want to bend and flexible and be flexible it's a terribly disfiguring limiting disease as an adult to see those people as adults it's just sad it is and so as a spine surgeon, I see the full spectrum. I see kids when it starts, and then I see what it looks like when you're an adult. And I can just tell you that if it can be treated early and, and dealt with in a simple fashion, that's, that's what I would want for my child. Um, because your options become much more limited, and then you're really talking about a radical surgery as an adult to fix it. And so that's why we screen for it, and that's why we try to get to it early if possible. What grade do they screen that in, or so what age group? Or? Typically, sometime between the age of ten to fifteen is when is when it's 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 targeted. Okay. okay. Um, the next topic that we talked about, which drives me nuts, um, as a primary care physician up in Covalo at the moment, is um, overlap. Uh, there was a patient that I knew that was a terrible problem with their knee you know, because I'm a seasoned veteran, you know. And so I sent him to Bill Bowen, and he laughed at me and sent him to you. said it was his knee was fine, it was his back. So let's talk about overlap, because as an internist, I've always been mystified by muscles and pain. Yeah, it's something that I think is really interesting about the human body. Um, well, the spine is, is at the core of your nervous system. And so any issue with the spine can basically mimic an issue somewhere else in your body because that's how the information gets back to your brain. That's how pain is transmitted, is all through your spinal cord and your nerves. And so if you have a pinched nerve in your back, if it's at the right area, it can mimic hip pain or knee pain. 
or pain in your foot. Um, all these things can be manifest as part of spinal pathology. And that's when people get confused. They can think it's, well, my, my hip or my butt is really hurting. I have this pain in my buttocks. I have this pain in my knee. And I, I really think there's something wrong with my knee. But you go and see an orthopedic surgeon, they look at your knee, they may get an x-ray and say, well, there's nothing wrong with this knee. I mean, there's no, it looks perfect. It looks like you have a regular knee. Well, where's that pain coming from? Well, it could be coming from the spine. And so there's no, there's no tool, there's no test that we can do that can tell you where exactly pain is coming from. And that's what makes spine surgery interesting is you have to rely on your physical exam and really get to know the patient and try to tease out exactly what's going on. And there are some, there are some clues that can, that can lead you in the right direction. Um, but ultimately, there's no test, there's no scan that you can get into that can tell you exactly what, where your pain is coming from in the body. And so that's when you get into overlap. I mean, you can have shoulder pain, it could be coming from your neck, could be coming from your shoulder. And figuring that out is up to your surgeon um, and working with you carefully and doing different tests and exam maneuvers. And I, I think that's a frequent area of confusion uh, amongst patients, among doctors, and even those of us who work in the spine. Um, where is the pain coming from? Um, that's, that's what's interesting about it though, as well. You know, this is, um, I, I could use myself as an orthopedic workbook here. And my, my um, I was supposed to be an orthopedist. My father built a three-story orthopedic office building for all my mother's uh, surgeons that they liked very much. Um, um, and orthopedics is fascinating. Getting back to shoulder problems, I had a shoulder problem and got it, of course, I went and got an MRI, which seems to be everybody's first step, which seems dumb to me now but ended up going to see a physical therapist and was shocked at you know all the different things that they did and you know put her pretty much cured my shoulder pain and i'm still unsure as to what the, all they did um but i guess where would you use physical therapy and all of this stuff because um it's uh we always jump to mris and surgeons well, I do have a I do have a soft spot in my heart for MRIs. Um, I'll just even even though it, it, some some people may think MRIs are overprescribed, but for me, an MRI is like uh, the most basic test. Okay. Um, so okay. if you come and see me, you should have an MRI. Right. That's just my disclaimer. But okay. back to your 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 um, comment about physical therapy. Well, physical therapists, what they're trained to do is get you to exercise. And they train you how to how to do the exercises. They they train you how to how to stretch and how to maintain your body. And that's, that's really their area of expertise. And so when you get into a situation where suddenly the, the shoulder is out of alignment, the muscles are not tensioned correctly, you may not have the flexibility that you once did. And so your range of motion is limited. So when you, your range of motion becomes limited, now you're compensating because you're using other areas of your body to to basically make up for this lack of motion that you have in your shoulder. So instead of instead of being able to raise your arm in this fluid motion, your arm may get stuck here and you use your back to get you the rest of the way up. Um, that's, that's very common. And so physical therapists really work to help break that, that um, stiffness, recondition your body, focus on the areas that are weak, and try to get the machine back into alignment. That's how I look at it. Um, so when a patient comes to see me for back pain, that's what I'm thinking about. What's out of alignment here? Where's, where's the pain coming from? 
what needs more flexibility, what needs more strength. And so I'll write a prescription for physical therapists when I think that there's imbalances between the muscles, there's limited flexibility, and I think that this patient really needs to exercise. Um, the body the body will not respond well to being sedentary, to being uh, immobile. Um, those things we know for sure are not good. In fact, another question patients always ask me is, am I going to be on bed rest for prolonged periods after spine surgery? And, you know, I just kind of chuckle when people ask me that because, you know, in the past, that's what they used to do is you had spine surgery and they keep you flat on your back for a couple of weeks. But now we know that that could, there's nothing worse for you than being on your back for a couple of weeks. Um, you can develop all sorts of complications from that. So even after spine surgery, we get you moving immediately. Sometimes even the day of surgery, you're up and walking and moving. And there's, there's really, even in the most radical spine surgeries that I perform, um, not not an instance where I keep people on prolonged bed rest unless there's really some strong need to do so. Um, but it goes back to this idea that your body needs to move and it's going to deteriorate if you don't do it. Well, I have to mention, um, I brought my sister-in-law uh, to to Ukiah to get her knee done, and I was going to watch her because she had these medical problems. I was going to be on things as a hospitalist. And what surprised me was how uh, Linda the God the Gadea, uh, the physical therapist that took care of her at UVMC, was how quickly she got her up using her new knee and did great physical therapy with her and had her, you know, just within days, I was just shocked how much improved she was with her condition. Um, anyway, that's a shout out to Linda. Um, we're talking to Yoshi Katsura, orthopedic surgeon, living in Willits, doing great things, who um, uh, very fortunately is married to this lovely woman who's a pediatrician in Ukiah. Um, there was a great fuss over her coming as much as uh, Dr. Kasura coming. Anyway, we're going to take your phone calls now, and Eddie's going to tell us the number to call because I always get it wrong. That number will be 707-895-2448. 895-2448. So you have an orthopedic surgeon on the on the show you can ask your questions for. Um, you said that 99% of the time you don't do surgery. I'm a little bit surprised at that. With all the back pain out there, I would have thought it was at least 20%. Okay, we have a call already, so we'll stop just for a second. Caller, you're, caller, you're on the air. Hello, this is a wonderful show. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question. About eight, seven years ago, I found out through an MRI that I was missing a bone between my L5 and S1. Whoa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that is explained many years of back pain, which is now getting worse. Um, I did the whole nerve burning for two years, which helped, but I think I'm beyond that now. So what, what would you recommend? Okay. Good question. Great question. Thanks for the, thanks for the call. Um, what you're describing sounds like a PARS defect or spondylolysis. That, that's a congenital thing that you're born with. Um, where part of your bone doesn't form properly. Um, that's, and it commonly occurs at L5-S1. And that can lead to a lot of different problems. It can cause pain just because you don't have that normal bony stability uh, in the vertebrae. Sometimes the bones can slip on one another and pinch nerves, and that causes pain as well. And it 
typically gets worse. It gets worse. Sometimes it can be asymptomatic for quite a long time and then get worse suddenly after you try to lift something or have an accident. And so I really think that you probably need to be evaluated, um, have x-rays taken, see exactly what the state of your spine is, uh, probably update your MRI, and then we'll take a look and see and see how bad it is. Um, this is not a, this is not a condition that's life threatening. It's not a condition that you urgently need to have surgery for. Um, but as you know, you've been living with it for a long time. It's painful and it's it's not getting any better despite your best efforts. And it may be time to think about um, having it evaluated by a spine surgeon. Um, what you would do to treat that is is a spinal fusion. Okay, thank you very much. We already have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Ah, thank you so much for taking my call. So I have a interesting um, connection here. In the mid nineteen eighties, I lived in a uh, on a, in an apartment in Berkeley on Sacramento and Acton. And behind us was a little boy who loved to sing, with a gorgeous, gorgeous voice. And I have a feeling that this is uh, the doctor that you're interviewing. Okay, well, we'll ask him. What a call! Is this true? Is this true, Yoshi? Well, that's certainly the area of Berkeley where I live and grew up, so it's possible. But I don't have a good singing voice, so I don't know. <laughs> but. I'm. I, I was about to be shocked that you could have an orthopedist who could sing. That seems an impossible combination. But okay, fascinating. We have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. I um. Oh, about 18 years ago, I lifted my foot. It was a silly thing to do to shut a, a stubborn door. And I twisted my pelvis to the right, and I have had this ongoing problem. Right now, I'm seeing a DO, and we do know that my pelvis sacrum is shifted way to the right by about five inches. I think you'd call it maybe anterior tilt. And along with that, I have advanced hip arthritis, bone on bone, and I just have—I can't walk, I can't bend, I can't do a lot of things. Okay. Uh, right now, we're just trying to treat the pelvis thing with exercises. How would you treat such a situation? Thank, thank you for the call. You know. The pelvis is a fascinating thing to me and how many people have, you know, problems with their pelvis and their coccyx and their sacrum. That seems like a, a contraption out of some, you know, science fiction movie. So I have no idea what she talks about pelvic tilt and this and that. Yeah, I will say that treating pelvic pain and tailbone pain is very, very difficult. And... Um, you know, a lot of people mention that my SI joint is dislocated or my pelvis is, you know, five mil five inches out of the out of the body. And I can tell you that the only way that that will happen is if you're hit by a, a truck or something. It takes an extreme amount of force to displace the pelvis. Um, and you only see it in extreme high energy trauma situations. And those obviously are life threatening and um, those are emergencies to deal with, but subtle, subtle changes in the pelvis are pretty rare. Why is that? Was well, because there's a lot of 
very robust bony ligamentous still stability in the pelvis and it doesn't move a lot um it does move a little bit but not a lot and and that's a very confusing area for doctors and for surgeons is um you know how much motion is too motion it's too much motion in the pelvis um it's been studied um extensively um but we know that the pelvis doesn't really move that much it may move a couple of millimeters here or there but it, it dramatic motions don't occur at the pelvis they occur at the hip um i, I know i know in the er when i saw a pelvic fracture i knew that wow there's a this is a serious thing because you rarely rarely saw pelvic fractures from auto accidents um yeah pelvic fractures are very serious yeah they can be at least and often you know i saw somebody die from the disruption of the venous plexus back there uh it was yes awful you know you bring up one subject my daughter uh fell getting out of a hot tub and broke her coccyx and coccyx fractures you know you can't cast it there's no simple oh we're going to rearrange and get you back into a normal alignment could you talk about coccyx fractures for a while because it was very <laughs> complex to me yeah so the coccyx bone is um it's the most it's the furthest from your head it's the one that's at the base of your tailbone um and a lot of problems arise from that that little bone there and mm -hmm. unfortunately there's really not a lot that can be done i mean the main surgery to treat coccyx pain is just take the coccyx out um which oftentimes doesn't work uh so it's not really a procedure that i do um because it's it, it's not effective um but it can be painful i've certainly seen people who have fallen um, broken their coccyx or displaced their coccyx in some way and then now suffer from chronic pain and as a result yeah. of it um yeah. i i usually recommend basic treatments so uh, you know avoid sitting directly on your coccyx or use a special cushion that right. you know pads it or protects it in some way uh, outside of that you might want to try some injections with a pain specialist uh, there are a lot of nerves in that area um and oftentimes, it's actually hard to pinpoint. Yeah, it's, uh, we, have an, we have another call for you already, so we'll take the call. Right. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hi. This is a kind of a general question. Uh, the doctor was talking about the scoliosis a while ago, and uh, we didn't we didn't really get into scoliosis one on one there. Um, it, it, he said the spine is straight, but if you look at a skeleton in a, in a laboratory. It, it does have a curve in the abdominal area towards the front. So I wanted to clarify that. I think he means a lateral curvature or bend uh, from side to side rather than from front to back. Is that is that the case? Yes. Um, uh, well, thank you for the call, Dr. Costello. Yes, yeah, that's a great point and great question. If you look at the spine from the front, so if you're staring straight at a person, your spine should not be curved it should be perfectly straight but if you look at them from the side um very astutely you mentioned that yes you do have curvature um you actually have three curvatures you have a curvature in your lumbar spine you curvature in your thoracic spine and curvature in your neck and those curvatures are extremely important for upright um, ambulation upright posture um they're, they're there for a reason and if you lose those curvatures um, looking at you from the side that that's a problem um that can lead to problems with the back and so yes the spine is curved it just depends on which way you look at it from but if you look at it from the front it should be perfectly straight so as you you know several times during this conversation i have sat up differently in my chair 
uh, because, you know, the idea of physical, you know, um, appropriate seating, what kind of chair you sit in, your posture when you walk. I'm always amazed how slumped over I am or, you know, just, you know, terrible stuff. And we need to have better posture and not sit. So yeah, I think it's it's a problem. It's a modern problem. You know, people used to not sit on chairs. They used to sit on the ground with their legs crossed and uh, or sit on their knees or some other form. And so it's 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 really a it's a manifestation of our modern lifestyles. We sit in chairs, we look down at the computer, we look at our cell phones, and our body gets accustomed to that. Uh, but really, we're supposed to be upright. We're supposed to be standing tall and um, walking around and having motion. And so, yeah, if, you sit, if you're sitting in a chair for too long, it can lead to all sorts of problems. So Dr. Chetland told me a few months ago that he had read some article that cell phones were going to cause 7 billion, you know, uh, problems with people's cervical spines and everyone would be getting, you know, cervical surgery at one time in their life because the posture, when you have your head tilted forward, it does something about the weight loading on your discs. Could you discuss that for a second? Hopefully, Dr. Rush, uh, Chetland was wrong, but it's yeah. Not a, um, I think the problem is not the posture itself, but maintaining the posture for a prolonged time. So, if you are sitting at home with your cell phone out, looking through the news or Instagram or whatever you look at, and then an hour goes by and you realize you haven't moved your neck uh, and it's been in that posture. Um, for that long, that's, I think that's where the problem arises. Your neck is meant to move freely in all directions. And so holding it in any one position for a prolonged period of time, it changes how those discs are getting their nutrition, as we discussed before, that they don't have the opportunity to move and absorb, absorb nutrients. And then they don't, they're not getting oxygen the way that they should. And that can lead to degeneration. I, so I think the problem is not yeah. necessarily... Yeah, go ahead. Not necessarily ho holding it in that position. You, you're meant to be able to look down. It's just holding it for hours right. on it. Okay. We have another call. Oh. Um, my friend Scott back in Austin, talking about the neck, um, um, hasn't been the most physical person in the world, but he's now having neck surgery. And the big discussion was whether he's going to have anterior or posterior neck surgery. And they finally decided that they could deal with his arthritis or something posteriorly. And then that was a much easier surgery than doing the anterior uh, surgery. Could you discuss what I don't yeah, understand? It, so there's, there's two different ways to get into the cervical spine, either from the front through the neck or just back, directly through the back. And they both have advantages and disadvantages. And it really comes down to what kind of problem you have and which way is the best way to deal with that problem. Um, both are very well tolerated. Uh, it, they, they both um, are, are very well tolerated and people do very well with either one. Uh, going through the front of the neck is nice because there is a basically a natural window that you can access the cervical spine through that doesn't require any dissection of muscle or and you know cutting oh, any really? major structures wow and so that that's very well tolerated um going through the back is is nice too because you can just basically make an incision in the skin and then you're looking at the spine um but it depends on what pro what type of problem, problem you have and what what surgery is best suited to treat that problem 
Uh, we have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, great. Thank you for taking the call and great program today. Um, I have a, a question, and um, Dr. Katsura, if you could answer. I was diagnosed really young, like at three or four years old, with scoliosis. My parents took me to public health. They did a screening, and so I always knew I had it, and they didn't do a brace or anything. They, in fact, encouraged me to do a lot of swimming, and that seemed to help. And so I just was going to ask if you have recommendations for preventative things for kids for parents with kids that have conditions these, after these teen screenings and such. Good question. And I should probably take it off the air. But Thank you. Okay, good. You know, swimming good for scoliosis or what would you do? That's a phenomenal question. Um, exercise does not prevent the pro- progression of scoliosis, unfortunately. Oh, really? Um, that's, that's been, I think, pretty well established. And I've never seen a case where exercise can stop an aggressive scoliosis from getting worse. Um, but exercise is good for a lot of other reasons. It keeps your body moving and keeps you healthy. And that's obviously been a topic of the show today. Um, it has a lot of other benefits just for your overall health. And so all kids with scoliosis, I recommend that they, they do exercise just for that reason. Um, but as far as treating scoliosis, preventing curvature, um, there are some methods to that, that have been tried to do that, focusing on very specific muscle groups to try to rebalance your spine, but nothing has been brought into the mainstream medicine that that, that, is, that is useful. Um, so we use, we use exercise to help people move better and be healthier, but it's not really a treatment for scoliosis. Um, once you get once you start having a curve that's progressing, you're either going to have a brace or surgery. Okay. You know, the one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times that I wasn't aware of is that the exercise is how your back gets its nutrition. I had no idea. So I guess because I went to the gym yesterday, that was good. Um, that extra, I mean, I, I just didn't realize that exercise was that so important to the nutrition of your spine and such. Yeah, it's, it's, it's less the, it's the motion. It's and the it's, motion. It's, it's not all areas of your back. Mm-hmm. It's really the discs and the cartilage. Okay. Um, so the things that the coat coat the bones mm-hmm. and protect the bones okay um cartilage doesn't receive blood from any other way but through the fluid that's in the joint and the only way the fluid gets circulate circulated is if you move it okay we have another call caller you're on the air um yes i'm um asking a question as an older person who is starting to develop um knees knee pain does the uh, padding between the bones does it ever replenish Okay, that's a good or, question. Talk about menisci yeah, and cartilages. That is a, that's a great question. So in between most of your joints is a surface of cartilage, and it's tissue that's designed to glide. So it's very slippery and allows you to have that really clean motion between your joints. And you, as you get older, that cartilage starts to wear thin. Um, and in your knee, you also have uh, menisci that protect you as well. But it's mainly the cartilage that causes the problem. And unfortunately, to date, there's, there's not really a great way to restore that. Um, there's, no, there's no magic medicine that you can inject into the knee or take via pill that will help you restore that, um, that cartilage. But I will say that there is still hope. Um, uh, which is that 
you can try to regain the flexibility of your knee. That will help tremendously. Um, trying to uh, get exercise and strengthen the knee, rebalance the muscles is also very helpful. And then ultimately, if that all fails, then um, you may require surgical treatment, which is a total knee arthroplasty, which is also very, very um, efficacious. Okay. There are there are scientific there are science fiction ways of rebuilding the cartilage, but nothing nothing is really used in mainstream medicine yet. Okay. Um, one other thing that I've seen people with different problems, um, and I've sent them to Dr. Young for uh, injections in their back. Uh, could you explain that? Because some people, I, I'm shocked that six months goes by and they've had great results. Some people, it only seems to last over a month, and I'm, I'm sure you could give a better explanation of what these injections are. Yeah, so the injections that Dr. Young performs are called epidural steroid injections. And basically what he's doing, what other uh, pain specialists are doing, is taking a small needle and placing it in the spine near a nerve and injecting a steroid. And the reason that that works in some people and it doesn't work in other people is depending on what's causing the problem. So steroids are very powerful anti-inflammatories, and they... If the problem is a result of inflammation, they're very effective. So when you herniate a disc, for example, that's a very inflammatory process. Putting a little steroids in there can, can calm that down and make the pain much better. But steroids do not stop nerve compression. Um, so if there is bone pressing on the nerve or disc or something that's really crunching down on the nerve, steroid injection is not going to do anything to stop that. In fact, it can make it worse. And so it, it comes down to what type of pain you're having, why is that, what's causing the pain, will determine whether or not an epidural steroid injection is okay. effective. But I think it's a good first-line treatment for a lot of people. Okay, we have one more call. Um, so I'm going to tell you my primary uh, care, you know, I'm, a, I'm seeing people, oh, we have another call. Oh. Nope. Um, so I'm practicing primary care in Covalo, and this woman came in, her anterior shoulder looked like she had a large golf ball protruding out of her anterior shoulder. And I could swear, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm an internist, but this was like some electronon process, you know, bursa. And I stuck a needle in it and drew off 50 cc's of fluid and was shocked and never seen anything like that before. What what was going on? That, I'm not sure. That she was like, 87. That she was like 87. I never, I'm not sure. Okay, God. Well, That she, sounds like a strange situation. <laughs> I, you know, months later she said it was good, but then it came back. It was some bursa that I had drained. Yeah. And, well, I, obviously, I, you can form cysts around any joint. Um, the joints are filled with synovial fluid, and um, when you start to develop problems or tears, uh -huh. they can form cysts or ganglia around any joint. So that's that's always possible, well, and that's probably what happened. Yeah, I'd seen them around the elbow, but I'd never seen an, a shoulder one. Um, yeah, that's that sounds unique. Um, okay, uh, I'll tell you the uh, another Kovalo story that I just saw recently that just oh, I thought was phenomenal. An 87-year-old woman had had a total knee operation 25 years ago. And Charpentier and Bowen did a revision, is that what you would call it, of mm -hmm. her total knee operation. And she's a happy camper and walking again. You know, orthopedists, 
um, um, are supposed to be, you all are supposed to be the happiest docs in, in the land because you see these dramatic changes in people's lives when they've had the back surgery or the knee surgery or whatever. Whereas an internist, you know, okay, well, your hemoglobin A1C is two points better. You don't have, you know, some jump for joy. Um, and maybe I should have gone into orthopedics. Um, I'm certainly a more of an orthopedic mentality than an internal medicine mentality. Um, um, but it must be very satisfying to see, you know, dramatic changes in some people after you do surgery on them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's why I do what I do is to keep people active and living the lifestyles that they want to live. I think that's why most orthopedic surgeons do what they do. Um, you're basically a, a mechanic for the body and you come in, your tires are worn out or your brakes are no good and you may need a new transmission or whatever. And, you know, that's what an orthopedic can help you help you do. It can replace the piece that's broken or, you know, tune it up or whatever. And then and then the problem is solved. But we're very problem oriented, I would say. And so when you come and see an orthopedic surgeon, it's good to be really focused about what your problem is. Um, everyone has aches and pains throughout their body. Um, but not all of that, as we've discussed, is going to be remedied with surgery. In fact, it could potentially be made worse with surgery. And so orthopedists are really good at dealing with targeted problems like if you have a bad knee your cartilage is worn out and you, you can't take the pain anymore well then a total knee replacement may be the option for you or if you have lumbar stenosis and your discs are slipping and degenerated and you have painful sciatica and you don't want to live with it anymore well then a lumbar fusion may be good for you but it's it's good to be really focused on what your problem is when you come and see the orthopedic surgeon because we're, we're problem-oriented people so, Dr. Katsura, if somebody wanted to contact you, what's your phone number up in Willits, or how do you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, the the best way is to call um, my office, and the phone number is I have to look at the sheet here, but it's seven zero seven four five six three zero six two. You'll either talk to Lily or Layla, who work at the front desk, and um, uh, I get to know one of them and. They'll, they'll get you in for an appointment. Okay, I'm going to have you repeat that. 456? Four, 456 four, We're about to end the show. Is there any um, parting um, pearl of knowledge that you would like to pass on? Um, take care of your back. You, you'll, you'll miss it when it's not working anymore. So do everything you can to try to keep it working. Um, you take it for granted sometimes, uh, but it's a really sophisticated machine. Um, it's, it's phenomenal at what it does. It keeps you standing, keeps you able to move around. Um, and it's a core component of your overall health. And so when you have a problem in your back, it's, it's disabling and it's crippling. Most of the time it's benign. Most of the time it doesn't require surgery. It just requires some conservative care and then you'll be on your way, um, but I think everyone should really focus on some sort of daily maintenance for their back. And that could be different for depending on who you are. Um, but it, it's really something that you have to work at every day, I think. Yeah, I think I think as an internal medicine uh, doc, you know, get out and walk. Do something with your body. It's amazing how sedentary people are. Um, I think that's perfect. Walking is the Walking is an excellent exercise for your back. Okay. I think we're at the end of the show. Eddie's waving at me. Thank you very much for the great show, Dr. Kasura. 
thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Okay. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.